Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall become a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him with the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnaharis, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, The Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would uh, be at work in our hearts as we hear the word spoken and preached, uh, that we might be encouraged, that we might be challenged, that we might be brought to repentance and faith. 
and might know uh, the sure foundation of you, our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The period of the judges in Scripture is a period of upheaval. Um, The nation of Israel, uh, for those of you who know some of your biblical history, had been uh, in Egypt. They had been uh, slaves of the Egyptians, and God had done an amazing work in miraculously bringing them out of the land of Egypt, and then he preserved and protected them in the, um, in the wilderness for 40 years before bringing them into the promised land. And uh, in the book of Joshua, prior to this time, uh, Moses had passed away, their leader in the wilderness, leading them out of Egypt, and Joshua had led them into the promised land, and the tribes, the 12 tribes, had divvied up uh, their land. God had given them certain areas of the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, and they had begun to conquer uh, these, these nations that were part of uh, the land of Canaan, and then things started going downhill. Uh, they uh, got defeated, and they were stopped, uh, and they did, not, uh, they did not aggressively move forward at times, and They had problems. They had problems. It was a time of apostasy. It was a time of idolatry. It was a time of spiritual compromise. It was a time of great evil. If you read the book of Judges, and I encourage you to do that, if you read all the way through it, your response more than any other book in the Bible is going to be, this is messed up. Uh, This is one messed up time. This is one messed up book. In fact, the book of Judges, more than any other, is a great book to say. You don't just go to it and say, the only thing that the Bible is is just good moral examples of things you're supposed to do. There are going to be times when you're going to, I'm not going to do even what that judge did. Okay, there's something else going on here in the book of Judges. Now, we can't draw a straight line from our time to the time of the judges in terms of application, but we can gain some insights as we look in our own time. Our time, our present day is a day of great upheaval, is it not? Uh, you, look at, you look at just at the, the events of the past few weeks, the upheaval of Afghanistan. Uh, we're leaving Afghanistan uh, not as victors, at least not in, in state building. And uh, this is not a political comment, but whatever your take on Afghanistan in, is, is not, a, is not a warm, fuzzy story, is it, in terms of where we sit today? And we think back just yesterday to the 20-year the anniversary of 9-11 and what we experienced that led us to go to Afghanistan in the first place, the terrorist attacks that precipitated our military endeavors in Afghanistan. We've got the pandemic uh, that we, uh, we were all hopeful. This pandemic, I prayed, if you've been here for a while, I prayed for months, Lord, uh, take this pandemic away quickly. And he did not answer my prayers. And so we've, uh, we've had hope that it's going to go away. And then it came back and it's coming again. And what are we doing? And then we've got, even in the last week, I would say, unprecedented division in our country over COVID and the response to COVID. We've got our own upheaval here in Bay County with the aftermath of the hurricane. What we've been through has been uh, extreme and severe, and some of you have dealt with it personally in your lives, in your homes, in your businesses. 
And some of you have dealt with uh, it, it, uh, other things personally that are going on in your life. Um, and I might ask, you know, when we look at the evil um, in our nation and the growing evil in our nation, uh, again, it can be something that is very disturbing. And even in the church uh, at large in America, certainly there are churches that are abandoning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are churches that are turning away from the truth of Scripture in terms of moral direction for our lives. And what of our own individual hearts? I'll leave that to you to determine where you're at um, at this moment as you sit here today hearing um, teaching on the book of Judges. So in one sense, on the surface, Judges would seem like a very odd book to try to encourage you with. Uh, because it is a very, uh, very messed up book in some ways. You know, maybe we should be uh, cherry picking um, some very nice psalms or something to encourage us today. But I believe that as it's set in some similar circumstances, that if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we're going to receive great help in our lives as we look and see what's going on. We're not going to be covering every judge nor every chapter in the book of Judges, and some of that is for time's sake. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of it, but some of it, frankly, is um, the material of the book of Judges is at least going to be R-rated. Uh, some of it is, and so for, for tender ears, I'm not going to be able to actually even read some of what's in the book of Judges. Again, parents, I commend that to you for your reading, understanding what's going on in the book of Judges. And even still, uh, parents, you're going to have some conversations with your kids on the way home from church, no doubt, even with my editing. Uh, if you would like to read the book of Judges and study more, I commend a commentary that is worth your purchase by Dale Ralph Davis, his commentary on the book of Judges. Um, it, there's going to be some elements that might be a little technical in there, but for the most part, no. It's very well-written, well accessible. Uh, my only critique of the commentary is that perhaps it's maybe a little bit too upbeat uh, for the tone, for the dark tone of the book of Judges. And I think that is um, due to Dr. Davis's personality. Uh, a few of you have probably heard him speak. He's a very upbeat personality. And that's probably really not a bad thing, given the dark subject, to have somebody that's a little bit more upbeat in their handling of it. So again, Dale Ralph Davis, his commentary on the book of Judges. So as we begin today, my sermon title is Here Come the Judges. We're doing a little bit of preparation work to understand the judges, why the judges, what's going on here that has led them to this point. And in order to understand the book of Judges, you have to understand what the Bible has to say about covenant, the covenant relationship that God has with his people. And we see this in the very first verse of our passage today, Judges 2, 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem, and, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. We don't speak much about covenants in our society. 
There is one place where still you might hear the word covenant used. If you go to a traditional wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom might say something like this. I take you to be my wedded wife or my wedded husband, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Covenants are both formal and heartfelt. There is a formality to the covenant. It's not simply a couple people making promises. As people come and vow before God and witnesses in a ceremony, there are covenant obligations that they're making. There are societal obligations, and they're actually covenant benefits. They're benefits to being in that marital covenant. But at the same time, it's also heartfelt. It's not just a contract. The husband and wife don't look across and say to each other, we're making this covenant and it's just business. You know, it's just business. No, it's not just business. There is a heartfelt love aspect to the covenants. And that's true of the biblical covenants, particularly with God and God's people. O. Palmer Robertson has said now fairly famously uh, definition of the covenant. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. There's a shedding of blood in the ancient Near East that was a part of affecting and bringing into being uh, this covenant promise, this covenant relationship. And it was usually in the ancient Near East, a king and the king's vassal, a greater person and a lesser person would make a covenant vow to one another. I saw recently a movie, a Western, an old Western movie, and there was a scene in this movie where um, the Native American and the not Native American, the cowboy and the Indian, uh, made a covenant with each other. They made promises with each other, and they pulled out a knife, and they cut into uh, the hand, the, the, the Indian in his hand, and the cowboy in his hand, and they're bleeding, and they put their bloody hands together, and they made vows and promises to, uh, to do certain things uh, and to keep a covenant with each other. That's a, that's a covenant. It's a bond in blood. A bond in blood in biblical terms, though, that is sovereignly administered. And way back at the time of Abraham, the first forefather of the Israelites, what, hundreds of years before his descendants were in Egypt, God made a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15, 17, we begin to read about that covenant. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. The pieces were dead animals. They were animals that had been cut. The blood had been shed. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying... To your offspring, I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Now, I think it's important that we stop here in the 20th, 21st century with our 21st century sensibilities. People ask all the time, 
Doesn't it seem unfair that God is taking away the land of these ites, you know, the Girgashites and the Kenites, the Jebusites, and giving them to the Israelites? Isn't that wrong? Well, let's move forward past the time of Abraham to the time of Moses. And God, guess what he does with the Israelites in the wilderness? He makes a covenant covenant relationship. He reaffirms his covenant to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And he has the covenant that's sometimes called the covenant of Moses. And part of that covenant of Moses, he tells why it is that the Israelites are going to take that land. Why are they going to dispossess the nations living in Canaan? And why is God going to give Israel military victory? This is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. He's speaking to the Israelites. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word of the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Third time he's saying it, for you are a stubborn people. Got it, Israel? It's not because you're so great, you're so righteous, but it's because of the utter wickedness of the people. I am bringing judgment as the king of the universe, the God of the universe, has promised to judge unrighteousness in this uh, extremely wicked unrighteousness by the Canaanites. And so God at this time is uniquely using his people to execute his justice in the land of Canaan. And I say uniquely because God doesn't do that anymore. God doesn't uh, come to the church and say, I want you to go and take up arms and attack something, right? What does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 6? There is war that we engage in. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against those spiritual forces of darkness, okay? So how bad were the inhabitants of Canaan? Well, we also see this spelled out. In the covenant commands, God commands the Israelites not to do certain things. And here are examples of them in Leviticus chapter 18, beginning with verse 6. There are prohibitions of intermarriage and sexual relations with close relatives. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or another home. There are prohibitions of bestiality and homosexuality here in Leviticus. There are prohibitions about child sacrifice to a false god, Leviticus 18.21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, so, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Now, why is God including this 
in uh, the law to Israel. I mean, those are pretty heinous things. He goes on to say, uh, Leviticus 18.27, For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Got it? So that's why God did this. He executed his judgment through the people, and then he said, do not become like these people. Do not follow their ways. And so back to Judges chapter 2 and this covenant relationship that, that God has with the Israelites, God has with his people. Again, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What have you done? So now I, will, now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall become a snare to you. God's saying, you have broken your covenant obligations. I will keep my covenant. Yes, you will possess the land, but you're not going to possess it completely now because you have not kept the covenant. They were told to drive out the nations. And at least part of the problem of the Israelites uh, that we find in in, uh, Judges chapter 1 was their lethargy in uh, wholeheartedly engaging in removing the Canaanites from the land. Uh, They were told not to follow the moral practices, not to take the gods of the Canaanites, not to worship their idols, to make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Uh, They weren't to intermarry. They were not to have uh, covenants with the people of the land, including marriage, for the reason that God had given these inhabitants of the land will, uh, will incite you, they will tempt you into uh, this idolatry and following other gods. And so it said, he says here, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who are around them and bowed down to them And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and Asheroth. Ashtaroth. Now, as we begin the book of Judges, you need to understand a little bit about what was going on in Baal worship in the land of Canaan. What was this Baal worship? And if you are even a casual reader of the Old Testament, you find this is a constant problem and a constant theme. The Israelites are are following the Baals. Uh, and they're, they're uh, rejecting God, they're abandoning God and following this false God. This was a Canaanite God uh, followed by the, the locals, and Baal was the God of the thunderstorm. Uh, you f- find depictions of Baal with a, a lightning bolt in his hand. And um, he was also the God of fertility, and those things come together. Uh, the rains come, 
Uh, in their due season, they bring, uh, they bring rain and the crops come and they produce the crops. And so the people believe that as they worshiped Baal, they, they could get Baal to go ahead and bring the rains so that the crops would come so that they would be able to survive. And uh, they were sort of like to the Israelites, yeah, your God, uh, the God of Israel, we heard great things about what your God did in Egypt and, and in the wilderness, but this is Canaan, you know, and you guys really need to understand that if you want things to go well in Canaan, you're going to have to serve this God. Now, how did they serve this God? You see, uh, Baal and Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth was Baal's consort. And so uh, the way that the rains came was that the... Uh, fertility rite of Baal consorting with his consort would take place, and therefore uh, fertility would happen as the rains came. So Baal worship involved uh, cult prostitutes, and the people would come and consort with the prostitutes as a way of of, uh, pushing Baal along to do his thing with his consort um, so that there would be Fertility in the land, right? So we understand what I'm talking about. So this was the nature of Canaanite idol worship at the time that the Israelites were following. And so they had abandoned the Lord and they had taken up Baal worship. So verses 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn them. And they were in terrible distress. Now, some say that God is never angry with his children. Now, he's not angry angry with us as his children in terms of judgment, the wrath of God. But the Bible says that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger, but he does get angry, and he gets angry with his children. In fact, he gets angry because he loves us. That's why he gets angry. Ralph Davis says of this passage, Such anger should not surprise us. It is the price we pay for being loved. Love divine is not soft laxity, but blazing intolerance, an absolute claim. Such is the God of Israel, whose jealous love makes him faithful in his anger toward you. Whoever heard of love and fidelity like that? You forsake him, and he will pursue you in anger. We have a covenant relationship with God as his people, his church. We read of this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? We have a relationship with our father, a covenant relationship. 
And so he will discipline us when necessary. And God not only disciplined them, but he saved them. He brought about saviors who were called judges. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, what is this thing called a judge? It's quite a bit different than what we think of judges today. Um, Judges sometimes settle disputes, and there was one judge that we see that explicitly did that sort of thing. That's Deborah in the book of Judges. But for the most part, what we find uh, revealed is judges were both military leaders and they were spiritual leaders to a greater or lesser extent. And they were uh, regional. They, were, they tended to be in a particular tribe. And so they would lead a particular tribe and be a savior for that region. And yet, ultimately, the judges failed. Uh, we heard before there was this cycle where the judges would come in. Right? They did not listen to their judges, verse 17, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity. Again, this is a covenant with a God who is heartfelt. The Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So there's this cycle that recurs over and over again. The people break the covenant, they follow the gods, They follow their ways. God allows uh, their tribe to be plundered, and um, and they're in deep, deep distress. They come to their senses, and they call out to the Lord. They call out to the true God, the one that had covenanted to be their God and to bless them and to bring them into the land. God responds by giving them a judge. Then they turn away and become even more corrupt than they were before, and so goes the book of Judges. One judge after the next, after the next, after the next. And so what happens in the book of Judges is there's a preparation. These judges are saviors. They're ineffective saviors. They're incomplete saviors. But they point to a savior that is going to come. As do the kings that follow the judges. We need a savior better than the judges. And we have covenant with a true God. And we have a bond in blood. A bond in blood that has been accomplished by the king of the universe, the sovereign, king of kings and the Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us, the blood of the eternal son. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. 
a sacrifice for your idolatry and my idolatry that we might be in covenant relationship with him. Romans 3.25, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a propitiation, the, the sacrifice, the payment that takes away the wrath of God by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So the new covenant, as the Bible calls it, is put into effect It's the ultimate and final shedding of blood, bringing about a covenant, and it also is in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is associated with this new covenant, with this new shedding of blood, with the the, the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, The prophet said the Spirit would come and the Spirit would do things with this new covenant that was never done before. And so the covenant was enacted by Jesus Christ the night before he died. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10, 12 through 19. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of the covenant. There are two things that are being spoken of there by the covenant that comes through Jesus Christ. The first is the forgiveness of sins, and the second is writing on our hearts and our minds the law of God. And so we come, as we've learned in our Sunday school class today, uh, by faith and by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. He took the wrath for us. We have nothing to fear anymore if we simply come acknowledging our sin By faith. And the Spirit of God is what does that. The Spirit of God comes into your heart and your life, and you hear His word, and you respond, and you go, My eyes are opened. I understand I am a sinner who justly deserves God's uh, wrath. And instead, I see, I see before me not only that reality, but that Jesus has come to take the wrath for me if I would simply place my faith in Him. He's done it all. He's accomplished everything. The Spirit of God working through this new covenant does that in your life. Any of you who have believed in Jesus Christ, the the new covenant reality of the work of the Spirit has come to bear in your life. But also, he will keep you in covenant. And as you stray, do you sin? Do you still sin? Yes, we still sin. We still disobey. But here's what's different. 
God is going to, by his spirit, draw you back that you would understand I'm breaking this covenant relationship. I'm going to uh, repent of my sin. I'm going to grow in my love for God. I'm going to grow in my righteousness before God. It's the work of the spirit in your life. And this happens not because you're somehow earning your approval of God, but because you already have it. He's working in your life. That's the work of the Spirit in the new covenant in both ways. And so we have confidence to enter the presence of God on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not our own. And we have the understanding and the hope that he is working constantly by his Spirit in your life, drawing you to himself because he loves you. And he's established a covenant with you, a new covenant. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16 speaks of God's relationship with his people. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. The Lord will not forget you. And so I would say, enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord if you have never done that before. Enter into his covenant by repentance of your sins and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life. And you may have, uh, this may be the first time you've walked into a church. This is maybe the first time you've heard this message. You may have heard it for 70 years. And the, uh, the work of God's Spirit may be active right now in your heart, and you see for the first time your need for a Savior, for the ultimate Savior. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Understand what it means to be the recipient of His covenant love now and for all eternity. Secondly, and by the way, I'm giving you just a few applications here. There are so many applications of chapter 1 and chapter 2 we're not going to get to. Uh, for time's sake, but uh, as we go through the book of Judges, we'll be even unpacking them. Number two, join a church. Join a church, whether it's this church or other church that uh, presents the gospel, because we are part of a covenant community. God deals with us not simply as individuals, but as he did with Israel, he deals with us as his people, and we should be part of a covenant community. We should be aligned with the covenant community. Because we are all in covenant relationship with God. He's called you to be his covenant people together. You, if you're a child of the covenant, by the way, let me put it this way. If you are a child of the covenant, we baptize. We say, baptize you as a child of the covenant. If you're a, if you're a three-year-old, if you're a five-year-old, if you're a ten-year-old, if you're a 17-year-old, and if you not become a communing member by profession of faith... You are still a child of the covenant. You're part of the covenant community. And just as the Israelites needed to uh, grow, and, and as they became older, they had to affirm uh, their covenant relationship with the Lord. They had to affirm the covenant and not reject the covenant. In fact, the problem was what? That there was a generational problem where some rejected the covenant. We see that in Genesis chapter Uh, 2 verses 8 through 11. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount of Gaash. And all that generation also who were gathered to their fathers 
And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work of the Lord and what he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So you, as covenant children, you come to that place, and it could even be today, where you say, I realize and I understand that I am a sinner and that I have a covenant relationship with God. And by faith, I embrace that covenant relationship. And by faith, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Secondly, or thirdly, realize that the Lord's Supper is meant to be a covenant renewal ceremony. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, it is Jesus instituted this, said this is the new covenant, a new covenant in my blood. And so there were all kinds of covenant renewal ceremonies in the Bible. Every time we come together, in effect, we are, we are renewing this covenant. God is renewing this covenant with us. And we're to be encouraged by that, that he uh, has us and he will not let us go, that covenant love. Many years ago, another church, uh, a husband and wife came to me and uh, the, the wife had been unfaithful to her husband and they had worked through it. And the husband and wife came in together and said, we would like to reaffirm our vows and I knew the situation. I said, well, that's possible, but you understand you're, you're still married, you know. And they said, yes, we understand that. And the husband in particular said, I understand that, but I, I want to affirm to my wife that I'm still uh, committed to her. And so it wasn't even so much I want her to recommit to me. It was him saying, I want her to understand that I'm committed uh, to her. Covenant renewal ceremony. That's what that was. And that's what we do in the Lord's Supper. And so when you come, realize that it's meant to be that. It's meant to be God's expression of his covenant renewed for you each and every time. And then finally, understand the appeal of idolatry. Uh, the, appeal, the appeal and the, um, uh, the, the pull of idolatry in our lives uh, and that we need to reject the false promises made by the idols. And there's just one example of idolatry that I'm going to give today. And uh, the Bible uses it in the New Testament. Uh, money and possessions. Uh, Ephesians 5.5. 5, he who is covetous, that is an idolater. Colossians 3.5. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said about idolatry in general, that an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone, anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live on, on which I depend. I've heard this phrase for the first time this week, uh, their allegiance is as shallow as the width of a dollar bill is our allegiance to our God as shallow as the width of a dollar bill. The dollar bill is tangible. We take the dollar bill to the grocery store and we get food and we have provision. And that was the appeal of idolatry. There's something here I can, I can put my hand on. There's something here I can control. I can manipulate. I can work. I can even steal. I can get this thing and it will provide for me. And money... And possessions can be an idol. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
And the people of Israel were seduced by this false god that said, I will give you the rain and the fertility that you need. Of course, that was a false promise when God himself promised to take care of his people. So understand the allure of idolatry in your life and move to trust in your king and your savior. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says it this way. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Does it say just do it? No. Why? For he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Mm. Would that be true of my life more and more and more? Would that be true of your life more and more and more? That we really believe that he is our helper. We have nothing to fear from anybody or anything and any, anyone that can do to me. Because if we don't believe that, then we run after idols to fill the place of our Savior. So trust in him. Turn away from those false gods and understand that your ultimate Savior has come. He is your helper. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the ultimate